to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Ask historians about the motives for going to war in 1861, and most will tell you that the South seceded to protect slavery, while the North went to war not to end slavery, but to preserve the Union. Many of them will add that over time, Northern soldiers became increasingly anti-slavery. Some will argue that by 1865, Union soldiers had adopted strong views in favor of racial equality. But does the evidence show this? Or was something else at play in turning northern soldiers into abolitionists on the ground? We'll find out from Christopher A. Teeters, author of Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the usual headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio in the Brewster Building, 
third floor, Office A320, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system, but I'm not speaking for the system or the campus or anybody, just myself. Our guest will always speak only for him or herself as well, tonight as every night on Civil War Talk Radio. It's final exam week starting today. Had both of my final exams this morning, and now I have a big stack of blue books to look forward to over the week ahead. But it doesn't trouble me because there is euphoria in Pirate Nation this week. The university finally got around to hiring an athletic director, which we haven't had for almost a year. And at the same time, a new football coach, uh, Scotty Montgomery, is gone. He was a popular, well-liked, good person. His kids went to the school where my wife teaches. Uh, No one has a bad thing to say about Coach Mo as a molder of young men, but he did not win many games, and the team was in disarray and got clobbered by North Carolina State last week. And so it was his first job as a head coach. He wasn't quite ready, and he moves on. And the new coach, everyone's just delighted with uh, the hiring of Mike Houston away from James Madison University. Uh, it's just uh, uh, these bringing good assistant coaches as one of the people on on, uh, a pirate website commented it's like christmas in december Uh, all these good things are happening at once for the football program so we're very excited and personally uh, i'm looking for some good news in football after what's happened the last few weeks basketball is looking good. The University of Michigan, my alma mater, is looking really good so far, undefeated, setting me up for another maize and blue heartbreak later in the year, but I'm 60 years old now getting used to that. Last week, I mentioned this was, um, at the end of the semester, the uh, class where I have the students in the Civil War course bring in a piece of the war with them, and this year, uh, a lot of people had relatives in the war, some they hadn't known anything about, but, but no real showstoppers, so uh, nothing to report there. <clears throat> it is today the first Wednesday of December, first show of the last month of 2018, and this being the year end, uh, every worthy cause around the country is seeking your donations, and Civil War Talk Radio wants to be no exception, so here's my pitch to you this year. Students at ECU pay $2,226 in tuition per semester. That's without fees. With fees, it's more like $3,600, which is dirt cheap on the college scale, I can tell you as a parent of a recent graduate from another state school. Uh, But an in-state undergrad pays for just the tuition each semester, $2,226. So if they take one of my courses, breaking it down, that comes down to about $20 per lecture. So for $20 an hour, they learn about the Civil War from me. You, on the other hand, uh, can teach yourself. You might go to a used bookstore if you're cheap like me, uh, maybe find a classic hardback for $10, takes you 10 hours to read it, that's a dollar an hour to learn about the Civil War. Or, with Civil War Talk Radio, there are now 450 episodes available, give or take a few. 
So if you were to donate $45 to Civil War Talk Radio, that would be 10 cents a show. But I'm not asking you to do that. $45 is a lot of money. Let's make it a nickel a show. $22.50. Go to impedimentsofwar.org. Click on the Donate button. You can donate through PayPal. If you're already comfortable with PayPal, go directly there and send money to Civil War TR, Civil War Talk Radio, Civil War TR at AOL.com. Uh, if not $22.50, you could also consider a $5 recurring monthly donation, which comes with a bonus, which is a lifetime free conscience, a warm, smug sense of superiority every time that I talk about contributing to help the show. You've already done all you ever need to do, and everyone else is the freeloader. And you get that for the price of uh, a monthly Starbucks coffee and muffin, plus you still get the 450 episodes. And as a bonus this month, I'm in full cell mode, I will use a portion of every gift to the show this month to make a year-end donation myself to a worthy historical cause, in this case, the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. Now, why not cut out the middleman? Why don't you just donate to the NC Civil War History Center yourself? The answer is your donation to this program shows me that someone's listening someone's enjoying it enough to commit a nickel a show and in turn that shows value to the administration here at ECU it helps me explain to the department chair and the dean why I spend as much time as I do preparing shows each week and talking with you on Wednesday nights the more donations that come in the more supportive the administration is likely to be of the program and my commitment to it so your support is really helpful in that regard. Now, I will not lie, I do feel uncomfortable sometimes asking for donations that you are related to the Civil War, because you could otherwise just go directly to Civil War Trust or NC Civil War and Reconstruction Center. Uh, so that's why I'm telling you that as, as we did a few years ago when your donations uh, were passed along by me and matched by me, I should add, uh, in a gift to ECU's Heritage Hall. Uh, this December, I will give a portion of every gift that comes in this month to the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction Center. So I can also have a clear conscience in asking you for your money to show your support, not just to part with your dollars, but also contribute to a valuable Civil War resource in uh, here in North Carolina. And speaking of Heritage Hall, uh, I haven't updated this in, in a long time. That's the site dedicated to university history that came about as a result of the renaming of a residence hall for a turn of the 19th century, 19th to 20th century governor who was a great education leader, but also a prominent leader of the black disenfranchisement movement. And... Uh, the physical Heritage Hall is a ways from coming true yet, but the virtual Heritage Hall is growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, you can visit it yourself. Uh, go to, uh, well, here's the whole title, lib, as in library, lib.ecu.edu slash heritage hall, all one word. Or just go to ecu.edu, like the man says, 
and click on the magnifying glass, get the search box open, and type in Heritage Hall. It'll take you right there. And you can learn an amazing amount about the history of this place, how we used to celebrate Lee's birthday here back in 1911, for example, um, all produced by my colleague, John Tucker. Professor Tucker is a history of Japan expert, but he's also the university historian and uh, has done a great job with that. So lots going on there. Um, Many more things. uh, Learn about what's happening at the show, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org. See who's coming up next. We've got one more show in 2018. Next week, Peter Carmichael joins us to talk about the war for the common soldier, how men thought, fought, and survived in Civil War armies, a long-awaited book and uh, an excellent one I'm very eager to read over the week ahead. Coming up in January, Will Green will be our first guest in 2019. On the 9th of January, he's writing about the Petersburg Campaign, Volume 1 is already out, and we'll talk about that with him. On the 16th of January, Alex Racino's novel, Six Days in September, on the uh, the Antietam Campaign, unusual to do historical fiction, but we will make an exception for this book. On the 23rd of January, Janet Kroon's work, The War Outside My Window, The Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865. You've probably heard of this book. It's getting a lot of good press. Uh, we were hoping, we had hoped to have the author, the editor on last September, had a conflict. She's so much in demand to speak about the book. So she will be here in January. And it, it's, as I said, a lot of people are talking about this book. And finally, rounding out January next year, 2019, on the 30th, Anna Holloway, who is a co-author with Jonathan White, of a book called Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It's a just beautifully produced book on the USS Monitor, and that also promises to be really good. Tonight, we talk about Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War. It's a book by Christopher A. Teeters, very possibly his first book. Uh, Dr. Teeters, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you doing? Good. Welcome to the show. Um, I got, went on and on. We're going to have to take our first break in just a few minutes, and I apologize, but um, glad you could join us for this. Uh, let me start with that Thank assumption you for I just me. made. Uh, is this, uh, in fact, your first book? Yes, yes, this is my first book. It started as my doctoral dissertation and then became my first book uh, with the University of North Carolina Press. And, and, and a good press it is. In fact, I see the series editor, uh, uh, one of the series editors of the Civil War America series is Peter Carmichael, who will be on the show next week. And uh, Caroline Janey and, and Darren Chi and Dean also have been on the show before, so you're in good company there. Uh, so this, where was your dissertation at? Um, it was at the University of Alabama, um, where I studied with Dr. George Rabel. Oh, very, very good lineage there. That's impressive. Another <laughs> friend of the show. So yes, um, yes, a great, great advisor. Uh, and 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 absolutely a great historian. Um, so, in in just a minute, uh, give us a quick. A sketch of how you got interested in this 
topic, although as I look at the engineer and saying, no, let's come back and do that. So that's what we'll do. We'll come back and ask you, uh, starting out, uh, how you got interested in history generally, the Civil War in particular, and specifically the, the topic of the liberation of slaves by Union soldiers. And we'll do all that when we come back in just a moment with our guest tonight, Christopher A. Teeters, author of Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater during the Civil War. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Christopher A. Teeters, author of Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War. Uh, it is exam week here at ECU. I was up late preparing two exams up early this morning administering them and I'm so uh, running so much on caffeine that I talked too much in the first segment didn't ID myself on the way out to the break uh, it's crazy time uh, when final exams are here but that's true every at every university so uh, Chris as, as if as you sign your name if we can go by first names um, sure. tell me about sure, your your Tell me about your background and uh, how you got into this. Um, well, I got interested in the Civil War when the movie Gettysburg came out. and um, um, So it's been quite some time, about the seventh grade, I guess. Um, and I got uh, really captivated with that movie, and particularly the character of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Um, of course, it's 
played by Jeff Daniels. And, um, um, and then when I got older and I started into Civil War scholarship and wanted to, I got my bachelor's degree from Northern Kentucky University and I got my master's degree from the University of Alabama and I was trying to settle on a Ph.D. dissertation. Um, I wanted to do something with Civil War soldiers, um, and I wanted to do something with slavery. And through converse, conversations with George Rabel, um, both determined that the Western theater had not been looked at near as much. And the Western theater, of course, um, where so many of the South slaves were, um, and where I could examine the liberation process, um, not just the attitudes of Western officers and the different armies um, that carried out emancipation there, but also the process on the ground. Um, and as I talk about my introduction, I, I was hoping or was wishing, maybe um, R.A. kind of knowing it wasn't going to be the case, but still hoping to find more officers like the portrayal of the idealistic Colonel Joshua Chamberlain in Gettysburg in the Western Theater during the Civil War. I knew that was probably not the case, but I was hoping to find a few more, and I did. What I found instead was just the opposite. What I found was not a bunch of Joshua Chamberlains, but a bunch of practical liberators, a bunch of officers who wanted to carry out emancipation or who embraced emancipation um, if they did um, for practical reasons as a military necessity as a way to hurt the um, uh, confederacy and strengthen the union and so that's kind of some of my background how I got involved in this particular project now the you talk in in uh, along in footnote you have to your introduction you talk about the historiographical terrain here, which I thought was very interesting, that you've got people like uh, Chandra Manning or James Oakes who argue that there was a lot of idealism in anti-slavery sentiment, either from the start of the war or by the end of the war, the, the needle has moved where the officers are not just interested in practical liberation, but have become full-fledged abolitionists and and uh, are, are strongly interested in, in you know post-war racial equality and yeah. then you've got you know people like Gary Gallagher uh, arguing differently can you talk about where where that stands and how your book situates itself with those people um, mine fits uh far more in, um, in short, mine fits far more in with Gary Gallagher's The Union War, um, and it it uh, kind of runs up against Chandra Manning and James Oakes' works. Um, I think I think there's, you know, this was a specific set of officers that I analyzed in the Western Theater, um, and this is these are the conclusions I drew, but I think with any question like this, one of the reasons it's produced such a diverse historiography is there are so many surviving letters and so many different groups of soldiers who wrote different things. Um, and so if you were to look at 
not the Army of the Ohio or the Army of the Cumberland or the Army of the Tennessee, and you might look at the Army of the Potomac more, you mm-hmm. might see regional variations in this debate. Chandra Manning, for instance, does look plenty at the Army of the Potomac and does look plenty at the New England, some of the, you know, the Army of the Potomac made up of New England soldiers, New York and Pennsylvania. And so some of this could have some regional uh, variation. I think, you know, when you kind of look at that historic graphical terrain, you find out that soldiers thought different things. Um, and there might not be this one single answer um, to these questions. There might be general trends depending on what groups you're looking at and what point of the war you're looking at. Well, you look at the war you know, beginning to end, uh, starting with 1861 with the uh, things like Fremont's Emancipation Declaration in Missouri in 1861, uh, right. At that time, the the law, the the Fugitive Slave Act, is still on the books technically. Uh, fugitive mm-hmm. slaves are to be returned, but you've also got the First Confiscation Act, uh, mm-hmm. which governs. And you talk quite a bit about that. Fill us in on what the First Confiscation Act said. Well, the First Confiscation Act um, allowed. Um, it comes from the idea of. Benjamin Butler, it originates with Benjamin Butler, and it allowed for the seizure of slaves who had been employed by the Confederate military in some way. Um, and um, there was some, in the Western theater with the First Confiscation Act, there was some movement. I mean, you... you you get different commanders that do different. What I found early in the war, during the first Confiscation Act period, mm-hmm. is you get different commanders who do different things. Um, because you don't, you know, you have Henry Halleck, for instance, in November of 1861, who's talking about prohibiting all slaves from coming into Union lines. You have, you know, you, you, Ulysses S. Grant in the early part of his career and, 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 is carrying out that policy, Don Carlos Buell. Um, so a lot of the top brass in the West were executing, you know, were excluding slaves or permitting very limited numbers coming in that would fall under the specific um, uh, specific definitions established by the First Confiscation Act, you know, being employed by the Confederacy. Um, uh, so what I found more significant for the West was the, the Second Confiscation Act. Mm-hmm. Um, in July of 1862, more than the first, the Second Confiscation Act, which in contrast to the First Confiscation Act, it allowed for the seizure of slaves who belonged to rebels, people with rebel sympathies, um, which opened it up quite a bit. Um, and so that, that's that, in, in contrast. Uh, so, so it's not just that the slaves are actually working on trenches for the Confederates. Now it's just enough that their owner is himself or herself a rebel. Right. Right. And exactly. that allows you to seize the slave. So that makes it much easier legally for officers to do this. Yes. Yes. Although there's some there's some thorny legal questions still. I mean, this is one of the reasons that that oh. 
want to get into the legality of too. There's some thorny legal questions. Sherman's even asking, you know, for instance, General Samuel Curtis is using the Second Confiscation Act to start issuing free papers. Mm. Um, Sherman said, no, it doesn't really go that far, um, that a court would actually have to, you know, who actually frees the slaves, in other words, is is the question that, you know, the owner's sympathy would have to be determined um, because of how the, because of how the Second Confiscation Act was written and because of congressional Republicans' desire to protect Southern Unionists. Um, they made it difficult. Um, but what ends up happening, for all practical purposes, is huge numbers of slaves are being confiscated under the Second Confiscation Act and coming into Union camps in western Tennessee, in northern Mississippi, um, in Louisiana, and, and, and in other parts of the west that the Union Army occupies. So the now the same generals you mentioned earlier, people like Grant and Sherman, are now involved in accepting slaves into their lines who who fit this. Um, yes. You you Kentucky, however, you, you mentioned Tennessee and Mississippi, uh, but things are different in Kentucky. That's that's not a Confederate state. Does that make a difference there? Makes a huge difference. Um, Missouri makes a difference, too. The border states, mm-hmm. I found the process different in those states. And it's because of, um, it's because there's a lot of sensitivity to not wanting to alienate those unionists in those, in those areas. And so when, for example, in Kentucky, in the fall of 1862 in Kentucky, um, the commanders there, at least at the top in the Army of Kentucky, um, are going to issue orders that pretty much say, you know, let's not confiscate slaves. Let's keep slaves out of Union lines. Even though technically the Second Confiscation Act applied in Kentucky. But then you have commanders under them, lower-level junior officers, colonels, um, that's, I could think of an Illinois regiment, a Wisconsin regiment, for example, who disobey those orders and start taking in slaves. Um, and so sometimes fighting would break out between Union regiments over these slaves. Uh, fighting would break out when the owner tried to retrieve or said they were the owner of uh, so-and-so slave that got in to Union lines. And so so you have a very, very confusing, even more complex situation in the border states, I think. And and you have you have people being you have officers being sued in court um, in the border states over taken slaves. Uh, for example, it's 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 not an easy thing, and, and emancipation is going to be a much slower process in those states than it would be farther south. One of the things, I I was particularly interested there, and when you were writing especially about the Army of the Ohio that I have studied a little bit myself, that uh, first it was interesting to see a lot of familiar names, the letters you're quoting, people like 
Landrum and Pirtle and Varian are. I've I've read their <laughs> letter collections as well for my own research, and uh, it was like, oh, I know these guys. I, I've read their mail. Uh, so it was it was old home week to to read uh, you know a lot of the sources that that we've used in common, uh, but the the Army of the Ohio certainly underwent this this same process you talk about where you've got leadership at the top in the form of Don Carlos Buell who's very conservative on the slave question doesn't want to interfere with slave property and then you've got officers below him who very much do but you've also got ones who very much don't people like Lovell Rousseau uh, exactly. Malin Manson these yep. subordinate officers are, are they they don't want to touch slave property and, and they get in conflicts too so it would Really, a messed up situation there. Let me ask about the yeah. the officers you you study. Who, um, how did you generate your your sample? How did you decide which who you would uh, look at for for purposes of this book? Well, I tried to I tried to get a um, fair balance between um, upper level commanders. And junior officers, because I wanted to see how this process not only took place, you know, with Don Carlos Buell and, 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 you know, his kind of chief lieutenants, but also, you know, with, you know, captains and regiments, colonels, um, majors. And so I wanted to have some kind of balance there. Um, that probably skews it. It probably skewed it definitely have you know, too many general officers because you have to include some of them and you have to include more of them because they, they're they so important in the formulation of policy. Um, I also, when I, when I did my research, I also uh, tried to find some balance in the branches of the service, um, infantry being the overwhelming uh, branch of the service that I looked at, and then the state's, when I, when I went to the various archives, I went to the major archives in the Midwest, across Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, and Illinois, and Indiana, where the officers were from. So I wanted to get mm-hmm. some kind of regional balance of the, for those armies. Um, so I tried. I mean, it's impossible. I think, I think as, if I'm remembering this right, it's... You know, James McPherson talked about it's impossible that we get a truly representative sample. But uh, um, um, you know, it never, it never. We we only have so much data, so we try our best to balance our sample and go with that. Which is all all one can do. The I did find as I was reading, especially the letters you you quote. My own conclusion from the Army of the Ohio study was that. Uh, was very similar to what you say that, that these men did not enlist to uh, to end slavery. They enlisted to save the Union. They were not abolitionists. They were not pro-slave. They didn't know much about slavery or care. Uh, many of them had never seen a black person uh, in in person in their entire lives. But they become increasingly anti-slavery, and, and I, I shared your. They very much share your conclusion in that direction, but the quotes you you have a lot of quotes of quite uh, Chamberlain-esque officers in the Army of the Ohio, in the Army of 
the Tennessee, who in fact are saying, I hate to see these people treated this way, and I think it's outrageous that we're not able to take them into our lines. And, and uh, the, the uh, I, I don't know if those are the quotes that, that appealed to me when I was writing or to you when you're writing this, but it seemed like it, it did show a fair amount of idealism. Uh, I think, well, and I think there's, I think there's definitely some. Um, I think there's, I think to be fair, I don't think they're all practical. I think, um, I think that that, and I also think that some of the officers who express um, um, kind of practical concerns could also express the idealistic. So it's not necessarily limited that this, you know, this one officer's only got to be practical in his attitudes. Um, so I do think that there's some mix there. Now, what I determined um, in the end is there were, as far as what I was looking at, and as I was, you know, looking at all the different letters I'd looked at, there was a lot more practical officers. But I wanted to include the idealistic ones in there to show that that was a voice and that was that was a, an opinion. I mean, there were some officers who, in the Western theater, who were very similar to the ones that Chandra Manning describes and who saw slavery for the first time and believed it was a terrible thing or some officers who sympathized with um, um, escaped um, African-Americans. And so mm-hmm. that, there, that, that element is in there for sure. Um, it's just the other, the practical kind of attitude was in there more prominently um, in the West. I, well, I think that makes sense as well. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk about uh, the question I brought up in the introduction about uh, how this affected racial attitudes and the views of towards equality. We'll discuss that with our guest, Chris Teeters, author of Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Christopher A. Teeters, author of Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War. The book that argues many Union officers, the majority perhaps were not idealistic uh, abolitionists out to end slavery, but as the war went on and they saw what slavery was doing to benefit the South and what eliminating slavery could do to benefit the North, uh, they changed their minds and they adopted it as a practical measure. Uh, Chris, one of my favorite books over the last couple of years uh, is Glenn David Brasher's book on the Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, where he makes very much the same argument in terms of the Eastern armies uh, approaching Mm -hmm. Richmond and the soldiers deciding, I don't have to like these people, these enslaved people, but it sure makes more sense for them to be digging our trenches instead of theirs. Uh, And I was interested to see, uh, so apparently that author was a, a graduate school colleague of yours? Yes, yes. Uh, we're, we're really good friends. Um, um, and um, I enjoyed his book very much, and um, I think that in many ways our works um, complement one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's, I think, um, Glenn's uh, work helps explain um, you know the the kind of um, rise of emancipation sentiment in the North and the practical uh, the the kind of um, military necessity argument gaining more and more momentum in the Northern public and among the Northern armies, particularly with the failure of the Peninsula campaign. Um, and then my work helped explain that sentiment in the Western theater and how they actually mm-hmm. carried out emancipation and policy on the ground. Well, and, and there are differences. Certainly, the, uh, you, you talk about the endemic racism of the Midwest, which, uh, having grown up in Michigan, lived in Indiana, and in, in Illinois, I can say, obviously, has not gone away in the 20th and 21st centuries. Right. Um, the... Uh, uh, th- there was one quote in, in your book that I, I don't know why I didn't mark, where one of the soldiers says, "I've I, I hated the abolitionists before the war. I still hate political abolitionists. They're a bunch of troublemaking cowards. Mm-hmm. But I'm a practical abolitionist. I do. I agree with all their policies now. I just don't like them any. And and yeah. you know, so, so much of politics is not liking the personality, even if the policies are okay. Uh, and and that really came out in, in that quote. Uh, but a point you make very much in the book that I really want to ask you about is uh, your discussion of racial attitudes and how the same soldiers who carry out the extermination of slavery on the ground, uh, plantation by plantation, and who have often relatively warm personal relationships with individual freed people who they take on to to work as their servants, uh, you would think that would in turn lead them to, after the war, have a fresh outlook on 
race relations. But that's not what you found. No, no, not at all. Um, I found that um, when I looked at their attitudes towards race in general, Mm -hmm. I found just as, as, as you just talked about uh, so well, the idea that the racism was was very much a part of um, the army of the you know the different armies in the Western theater and the way that they characterized African Americans, um, those th- that racism was definitely entrenched, and I didn't see it move a lot. I I didn't really even if they moved on. Um, emancipation, um, which many did, mm-hmm. even if they moved on the use of African American troops, which many did. Now that that became a thorny issue too, of course. Mm-hmm. But the they they weren't moving on racial equality or seeing any of these um, people who were escaping. The union lines is equal, or wanting even sometimes not even wanting them to go north. Um, and even and, and you're and you're exactly right, Jerry. Even when when a, a, a servant would serve a particular officer very well, that officer could display enormous sympathy for that servant, even to the point of sending that servant that person to his home um, to have that servant help his wife and children and that's how much he trusted that person but that would not shake his overall perceptions of African Americans it would just it would just the individual you know for that individual African American he felt well this is and they even made distinctions well this is the smartest African American I've ever met um, and they would say things like that. And so you, you, you get changes in, you know, like in these very personal attitudes and, and some profound ones, some very strong emotional connections at that. But you don't get this massive revolution when it came to attitudes about race. And that really, really does show in the, the quotations you have throughout the book. Um, you know, you. You take the language as you find it. What they wrote in their letters and diaries is what it is. And uh, readers, uh, listeners, if you're uncomfortable reading the N-word, this book may not be for you. Um, because these union officers uh, seem to have no other word to describe dark-skinned people. Right. Uh, and, and as you say, whether the quotes are positive or negative, they still can't yeah. get away from that, that kind of racist language that's right that's right i mean even 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 the officers who were you know describing how helpful a particular african-american had been around camp or had done something particularly notable you know sometimes they found for example uh uh, african-american preachers or um african-americans who had helped them escape from prison and help them in the most dire of circumstances and they still can't get away from using um, you know very racist language to describe it it, it just 
it, it's a little bit discouraging that uh, the, these soldiers are not blind to reality. They see emancipation will help them, will help their cause. They see these are human beings who deserve to be free. Mm-hmm. But nothing shakes the in, ingrained racism that they've been, been raised in. Uh, right. Let me ask about, uh, we've been talking about the, the attitudes and so on, but one of the other things that you stressed a few minutes ago and that you stressed throughout the book is the process of liberation. Uh, mm-hmm. How does it actually happen? Could you talk a little bit about uh, uh, Rosecrans in Tennessee or Sherman in Georgia or just give an example of how this worked out on the ground? Sure, sure. Um, it's, 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 it's a complex process that doesn't always work out the same way, for sure. But if you, if you go into, let's say, post-emancipation proclamation, um, um, and Rosecrans is in Tennessee, um, and there, or Grant in, during the Vicksburg campaign, either way, um, they very clearly are permitting the Union Army to allow slaves who are escaping or running towards Union lines to enter. Now, what they what they clearly want or they clearly are thinking about is employing um, the slaves. They want them to be pioneers. They want them to work on fortifications. They want them, of course... You know, in '63, they want them to be soldiers, and so. so uh, go ahead. This, this means no. This means they want able-bodied men, not women and children. That's right. That's right. Their focus, even in some of their official orders in the OR, um, was in some cases on able-bodied men. If you look at, I think a great example offhand. If you look at William T. Sherman's orders. Um, in Georgia, before his march to the sea, he specifically talks about able-bodied men, um, and sometimes Grant does too. And, uh, and sometimes they'll send out parties, they'll send out raids to gather supplies, and they'll talk specifically. They'll bring in this, this, and then as many able-bodied men as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are definitely focusing, targeting. Um, able-bodied men who can serve the army in some capacity, or they believe could serve the army in some capacity. Now, women also had agency here. Women would come to Union camps and and beg to be taken in some cases, um, and and try to demonstrate their value or illustrate, you know, say, well, I I'll be your nurse, or I'll work in the hospital, or um, and sometimes that would work, um, because whether African female African Americans or male African Americans, they very much understood what the Union Army wanted, mm-hmm. um, and what they they very much understood how this process was working and what to say or what to do to kind of you know gain their freedom or get in this kind of um, you know stay with the army. Mm-hmm. So um, they, so they end up coming in as well, and and people like Sherman and Rosecrans, Grant, all these officers find they can't keep out the women and children that 
Right. These armies are just slave magnets. Yeah, that, and that's where you get some very tragic examples of contraband camps um, where um, they, a lot of the women and children and old men ended up in contraband camps um, that could be poorly supplied or poorly provisioned. Um, sometimes you get plantation programs uh, where they worked uh, people on uh, plantations. Um, you get a whole system Lorenzo Thomas is in charge of in the Mississippi Valley. You get a system that Benjamin Butler inaugurates, eventually Nathaniel Banks um, comes, you know, brings to Louisiana. Um, and so there are various ways. One of the themes that I found a lot, though, and just to kind of summarize it in one, sure. in one word, was work. They mm-hmm. wanted the Union, Union forces, wanted them working in some way and helping the Union Army, if at all possible. And by doing this, by bringing in all these people who could work, and especially later when they brought them in as soldiers, uh, you make the point that this utterly eradicates the institution of slavery. Uh, even those who are still on the plantation know they have somewhere to go now. And... Mm-hmm. and uh, it creates what you call an unintended social revolution. Uh, yeah. We have just a minute or so to go. I wanted to raise one last point that really intrigued me was uh, in your conclusion, you, you point out that there's an echo of this during Reconstruction. Uh, just as the Union officers didn't go to war to end slavery and, and were never never changed their racial attitudes, but they saw this would this was the way to beat the rebels, was to free the slaves. Uh, right. That you don't have a strong impetus for racial equality and voting rights uh, throughout the country in 1868, 1869, and Reconstruction. But the right. rebels themselves are so recalcitrant and so unrepentant that the only way to mm-hmm. stick it to them is to pass the 14th and 15th Amendment. And, and right. these two are, I, I found that fascinating as a comparison. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think it does relate to reconstruction. It does relate to this just this feeling that you know, if you don't do these things during reconstruction, the rep, the rebels are trying to, you know, push back the legacies of the war, trying to roll it back. And you know, the these union officers in the west who won the war are saying, "No, you're not going to do that." Um and so we're going to, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to make the reality of the war, the legacies of the war, the end of slavery, and the, the salvation of the Union a reality on the ground. Well, let me conclude to say that one of the hardest things I find trying to talk to uh, non-scholars about the war, especially in the South, is the resistance to the idea that the war is about slavery because they assume if the South was about slavery, that means the North must have been about freedom. They're the good guys. We in the South are the bad guys. I can't accept that. Therefore, war wasn't about slavery. And they're all wrong. To be able to argue, yes, South was about slavery, but read Practical Liberators. The North was not all about freedom. It came about that way, but these were not angels. These were racists from the North who freed slaves because it worked. And uh, you don't have to... Uh, there's no monopoly of, of virtue in the North or... or uh, evil in the South by any means. It's widely shared. 
Uh, and I will recommend your book to people when I have that conversation next time. We are out of time. I apologize for uh, going on at so much length tonight, but I really enjoyed this book, Chris. And listeners, you will enjoy it. Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War by our guest tonight, Christopher A. Teeters. Chris, thank you for joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jerry. I enjoyed it tremendously. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.